Well, good morning. I'm Bill. I'm another one of the pastors here. And this morning we come to our last piece of our series on the life of Joseph, how God worked good in a horrible set of situations. We started with the ultimate dysfunctional family. We ended up with Joseph sold as a slave in Egypt, then unjustly, unjustly rotting in jail due to a false accusation. We had hardened brothers lying to their father and keeping a guilty secret. We have a father shattered by grief, unable to parent. And then change started to happen. The brothers started changing, repenting. And in Egypt, in a way that could only be divine in origin, this convicted Hebrew rapist ends up becoming the premier of the nation. And then God's people are put back together. The family is reunified down in Egypt where they're protected from a worldwide famine. And at the end of the story then, Jacob, the family patriarch, dies. And Joseph's brothers start to get nervous. So we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. In your pew Bible, it's page 44. This is the Lord's word to us this morning. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. As we worship, let's stand again. Please be seated. And please, if you would, pray with me again. God, our Father, we come yet again with the same prayer we have prayed in this series, that you would touch us through the story of Joseph's life, through what you have preserved for us in your word, that our look at it this morning would not come back empty, that you would... Bless us that we would 
not leave until you've changed us by your spirit, that you would bless us, that we would be closer to our Lord Jesus, that we would be living in his forgiveness, extending grace to others. Would you transform every bit of us? Lord, we, we come this morning and we beg that grace would change everything in us even now. And we pray that you would do that, and we pray it in the holy and wonderful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So, you know, right, that saying someone is forgiven is a different thing than actually forgiving them. When somebody sins against us, you could say it creates a debt. And we are almost endlessly creative at finding ways to make other people pay down their debt to us. Now, you can just get cold to them. You can make them grovel their way back for your forgiveness. You can eviscerate them publicly. You can turn your friend group against them. You can feel the anger that will well up against them every time you think of them. Even worse, you can just cut them off. It's like you're dead to me. We're endlessly creative at making other people pay down that debt. And have you dealt with someone who says, I forgive you, but then you know they haven't because they're taking it out of your flesh, little piece by little piece by little piece by little piece. Have you had to deal with this? Even worse, have you been that person? In Genesis 50, through Joseph, God gives us a picture of what true forgiveness would look like. And he tells us that we can and in fact we must truly forgive from the heart. That we can and we must Truly forgive from the heart. And this morning we're going to look at that in just two points. Forgiveness. One, what is it? Two, what makes it possible? What is it? What makes it possible? So to start, what does Genesis tell us about the nature of forgiveness? What is it? Well, the first thing we learn from this passage is we see that forgiveness is not merely an intellectual activity. Now there's certainly huge and vital intellectual pieces to forgiveness. There are truths that we must say and we must teach ourselves and we must live through ourselves. At least in this passage, a couple of them. One, wrong things have been done to us. And two, God is still in control. Now it starts with an honest statement that wrong things have been done to us. Verse 17. Joseph's brothers, concerned now that Jacob's passed from the scene, invent a fiction. They pretend that dad told them to say something to Joseph. And they send this message. Now, you know, most lies work best when there's an element of truth. And there's a huge element of truth to this lie. What is it? Well, the fact that his brothers did evil to him. They beat him. They stripped him. They sold him into slavery. They forgot he existed. Real, honestly, evil has been done. The point's this. Denial's not forgiveness. Pretending something didn't happen or pretending something isn't that bad isn't forgiveness, it's denial. We start by recognizing the truth that wrong things are done and calling them what they are. Wrong needs to be called wrong. But we pair that immediately with the second truth. It's been the point of the whole eight-week sermon series, verse 20, that God is still working for good, that God is in control, that no matter what other people have meant, God is actually still fully in control. The Bible gives you this earth-shattering verse, in fact, that even what people mean for evil, and even what actually is evil, 
God is still in some way going to use it for our good. And that's quite a thing to get a handle on. That's why in eight weeks we still haven't begun to. In that context, though, we realize that forgiveness begins with intellectual truths, but that's where it begins, not where it ends. Our forgiveness must work from these truths we tell ourselves down into the depths of our heart. And that's what we actually learn as we look at the example here with Joseph. If you look back at verse 17, it doesn't stay in his head. I've got to tell you, as, as a pastor, but even more as just somebody who for decades has not been very good at forgiving, a forgiveness that's merely intellectual very quickly will be a hollow and a fake forgiveness. It's not real until it works from here down into here. And it happens with Joseph. His brothers try this ruse. Look what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, there you go again. See, you're still not trustworthy. I still see that you're not really full. I still see that it's not, you're still trying to lie. He weeps. He weeps that his brothers feel the need to lie to him. He weeps that his brothers aren't secure in the forgiveness that he's given them. His forgiveness is not stayed here. It's moved down into his heart. It's settled into the depths of his soul. And the simple truth is this. What's true in our head and in our heart will work out through our hands. Inevitably, the true statement of what we believe and what we feel is what we do. So if you say, I've forgiven her, but then every time she comes around, you're cold as ice. No, you haven't. If we say, oh yeah, I've forgiven, but then every time the person comes up into our head, we are just seethingly angry again. No, we haven't. If we say, oh yeah, I've forgiven, but we have nothing to do with the person, that's not true forgiveness. The biblical model works further than that. It works out better than that, greater than that. Look at the text again. Joseph does two things. One that he doesn't do and one that he does do. It starts with the fact that he doesn't take revenge. Verse 17, again, the brothers try this ruse. Now you understand why they try it, right? They have been in a dog-eat-dog world. They know that the average person who says, I forgive you, doesn't mean it. Now their father has passed away and they wonder if Joseph has been biding his time this whole time, just waiting. And now that dad's gone, it's going to be a dish best served cold. You can understand why they'd worry about this. So they try the ruse and they play the family card and the God card in the same thing. And Joseph just wipes it all away. He says, what? Am I in the place of God? Verse 19. Am I the one who's going to judge what you did wrong? No. He wipes it away. He says, you're safe. I'm not going to take revenge on you. There's a negative, but there's also a positive. We haven't gotten to true forgiveness when we say, yeah, I've forgiven her, and now I'm never going to have anything to do with her again. The Bible, I dare say, begs more than that. Look at verse 21. Joseph doesn't just say, I won't take revenge. He says, I will care for you. A true forgiveness works for the good of even the person we have had to forgive. He says, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of your little ones. And I dare say the really challenging part for me of verse 21 is the last part. And he spoke kindly to them. It's a rebuilding of relationship. The model of forgiveness the Bible gives us starts in our head. It works through our heart and it works out through our hands. It's a full forgiveness. Now... In Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Peter rolls in to talk to Jesus. And Peter says, hey Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive my brother who sins against me? And he thinks he's going to be real anonymous. So he goes, seven times? 
And Jesus replies and says, no, Peter, not seven. Seventy-seven times. Which for all practical purposes means what? Always. This is our call. But Bill, but Bill, you don't know what she's done to me. Bill, you don't know what it was like to grow up with them as parents. But Bill, you don't know what he's like. You know what? Maybe I do, maybe I don't. It depends. And the biblical call is not, hear this carefully, to stay in an unsafe situation. But the biblical call is that we must forgive. Full stop. It's um, interesting, a very famous um, section about this, Corey Tinboom wrote, she spoke here many a years back, but she wrote about the process of learning this herself. Now, if you don't know the backstory, Corey Tinboom and her family hid Jews during World War II in Holland. And then they were betrayed. She and her sister were sent to a concentration camp. Her sister died there. She was released only two weeks ahead of when all of her cohort was gassed by a clerical error. She moved back to the Netherlands, set up a home to help people recover from the genocide. And then she began speaking around the world about what forgiveness looks like, including going to Germany and speaking in Germany about forgiveness that they could receive, that their sins were cast as far as into the bottom of the sea. And she said in Germany, nobody ever asked questions. They just picked up their coats and left because it was so hard to believe this. Except she spoke in Munich one day, and now her words. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath her parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take this hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me the cruel things I did there, but I would love to have it heard from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins every day had to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours 
as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and to rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Who do you need to forgive? Whether as far back as your childhood or as recent as this morning, and probably both. Who do we need to forgive? Now, I'm not saying it's easy. The biblical example is bracingly hard. Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave. It's not easy. In fact, it's so difficult that Jesus died for it. There was no other way. And it brings us to the second question. What is it? What could make it possible? How could we? What would make forgiveness possible? Well, three things from this passage. First, verse 20. Seeing God's hand. You know, the whole point of the series has been that life looks like it goes this way and that way and this way and that way. It has twists, it has turns, it has hairpins. It seems to have U-turns and backtracks. My life feels often like the flight of a butterfly. And you think, is God in control of this? And the Bible dogmatically and deeply asserts, yes. He's in control of it. Even the hard parts, even the bad parts, even the evil parts. I got an example of this when I was driving down a few years ago from a meeting in Maryland on Friday afternoon. It's about 2 o'clock, so it's just ahead of every, all the mess that develops. I'd just gotten on the 270 spur, and it was like my GPS developed a voice I didn't know it had. It sounded kind of like Zool from the original Ghostbusters. It jumped off my dash, grabbed me by the shirt, pulled me tight and said, get off the expressway now. So I got off the expressway. And then I took a right and a left and a twist and a this, and I'm going down neighborhood streets. And before long, I thought, this fool thing has got me so messed up. I'm so lost now, I don't have any choice but to follow it. But this cannot possibly have been better. It's only two in the afternoon. And suddenly I emerge on this bridge over the beltway. I was discovering without knowing it the Seven Locks Road shortcut. I emerge on this bridge over the beltway. No entrance ramp, no exit ramp, so nobody can get to you. Immediately over a tractor trailer which has jackknifed and blocked every lane of 495 on Friday afternoon. It seemed random. It seemed bizarre. It seemed wrong. And yet 
Waze knew that the only way to actually get me home was to do this. I've never questioned her again. <laughs> but that's God's providence. Verse 20, Jacob, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's our lives. And that's hard to believe. Because there's some really bad stuff that happens to us. But here's the proof. The darkest day of human history, when Jesus, the one person who deserved it not, hung on a cross for sin. The day that the devil danced. The day that if anyone meant it for evil, men meant it for evil, was the day God was working the best day of human history. The day that he was working deliverance. The day that he was saving us from our sins. Yes, people meant it for evil, but God worked even it for good. No matter how dark it seems, it has not escaped God's control. Leading to the question, where does it seem dark to you right now? Where does it seem so dark that it's hard to remember? Well, remember, God's still in control, verse 20. How do we forgive? One, we remember God's in control. Two, we remember how much we've been forgiven. Now look back at verse 19. Joseph said to his brothers, am I in the place of God? In other words, is it my job to decide who's sinful and who's not and who's forgiven and who's not? No. Well, you know, ever since Genesis 3, the common human sin has been that we want to answer that question, yes. I do want to be in the place of God. I want to decide who's forgiven, me. And I want to decide who's not forgiven, everybody else. I want to exact justice. I want to exact vengeance, unless it would be on me. We all want to say yes to Genesis 50 verse 19. But Joseph says, take that stick with which you want to beat the other person who sinned against you and just back away from it. How can he say that? How could he begin to do that? Because he was looking at what would happen after he died. This explains the curious last three verses of the passage. Joseph says, hey, I'm about to die and when I die, do not bury my bones here in Egypt. Doesn't that seem a little odd? Why does he care? He's dead. He's not paying attention. Why is he so insistent? He's so insistent because even though he rules Egypt, he knows it's not his home. And he knows that when he dies, God is not done. That God will do more. He knows that God will come back. God will visit his people. He will bring them out of slavery in Egypt and take them up to the promised land that he's promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when that happens, he wants to be part of it. He knows that his death isn't the end of the story. And you and I on this side of the cross know that in spades. We know that when we die, it is not the end of the story. That our bones, just like Joseph's, will rise. And they will rise to meet Jesus whose bones have risen because that dank, dark tomb is empty and when we rise to meet Jesus he will look at us and say you are forgiven my daughter you are forgiven my son because I paid for your sin you know Christ is the one person who could actually look at verse 19 and say yes he is in the place of God because he is God and the one person who could judge our sin says I have wiped it away I've thrown it into the depths of the sea it's as far as the east is from the west you are forgiven and if he says that to us, we can say that to others. I, my first summer job ever was cooking cheesesteaks at a cheesesteak place in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, my co-cook, a guy named James, who was on my right, was an illiterate black man who took four buses to get from South Atlanta to where we worked. 
And we worked for, I dare say, the most racist human being I've ever been around. It was astounding the stuff he would say about customers to my coworker James. I will not repeat them anywhere, not even just not in here. Stuff that ought not be. And one time, our manager Cliff had just gone off to the bank, and he'd said something even more egregious than normal. And, and I looked at James, because it was just the two of us in the store, and I said, why are you putting up with this? And then I found out to my amazement that James had switched jobs from a previous job to follow Cliff to this store. Why? And James looks back at me and says in his broken dialect, he says, well, Bill, Jesus has forgiven me so much, I guess I'm just going to have to forgive Cliff this one. And that's the moment I knew I was in the presence of a spiritual giant. How can we forgive? Because we realize what Christ has done for us. And third thing, and don't miss the third thing. We can forgive because we recognize it's a process. Now that's actually a little hard to see from this passage itself if you just go right in on verse 15 and following. But back up and think about the whole series from Genesis 37 to 50. We see this with Joseph at the end of his time. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he was a teenager when he went to to Egypt. He was a slave. In his 20s, he worked in Potiphar's house. He lived in jail for years and years and years. He then was elevated to help prepare for the famine for seven years. He then has been ruling Egypt for at least seven and more years under the Pharaoh. You see this picture of Joseph at the end of a process that's been at least decades long. And so it's easy for us to forget this is something that takes time. It is so easy for us to look at the biblical model and say, well, okay, that's easy. It's forgiven. Get over it. Particularly if we have someone we've sinned against, we've apologized. Why can't he just get past it? Why can't she just forgive me? Or sometimes for ourselves, why can't I just get past it? Recognize that it's a long, slow process. This is in fact why also... It's a process that we almost never can pull off alone. This is why you need a small group, a community group. This is why there's such value in going and working with a good counselor. This is why you walk the road together. Because forgiveness is rarely easy and it's almost never fast. But it can happen. And it's interesting, I think the most interesting piece of Corey Tinboom's piece, I read you the famous part. I think the part that's most interesting is the part after the famous part. The part about everyday life. So she goes on, and this is what she says next. And having thus learned to forgive in the hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say it. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on. But they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's this way. For every time I go to him, he teaches me something else. I recall the time some 15 years ago when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. You would have thought that, having forgiven the Nazi guard, this would have been child's play. But it wasn't. For weeks I seethed inside. But at last I asked God to again work his miracle in me. And again it happened. First the cold-blooded decision. Then the flood of joy and peace. I had forgiven my friends. 
I was restored to my father. Except what she writes next is that night she woke up in a fury thinking about it. And the next night she woke up again nursing it. And the night after that, and the night after that, and the night after that. Till finally, two weeks later, she confessed this to a Lutheran pastor in her area. Back to her words, up in that church tower, he said, nodding out the window, is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the bell ringer lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong. Slower and slower until there's a final dong, and then it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. And they're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowing down. And so it proved to be. There were a few more midnight reverberations, a couple of dings when the subject came up in conversation, but the force, which was my willingness in the matter, had gone out of them. They came less and less often, and at last stopped altogether. And so I discovered another secret of forgiveness, that we can trust God not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. And the amazing thing is, it doesn't stop there. She then recounts that 15 years later, a friend from America was visiting her, had dinner at her apartment with those same people that had wronged her. And when they left, the friend said, hey, Corey, aren't those the... And she said, yes, I've forgiven them. And he said, oh, okay. Have they received your forgiveness? And she snapped. They say there's nothing to forgive. They deny it ever happened. But I can prove it. I went eagerly to my desk. I have it in black and white. I saved all their letters. I can show you where. Corey, my friend, slipped his arm through mine and just closed the drawer. Aren't you the one whose sins were cast into the bottom of the sea? And yet the the sins of your friends are etched in black and white? For an anguishing moment, I could not find my voice. Lord Jesus, I whispered at last, who takes all my sins away. Forgive me for preserving all these years the evidence against others. Give me grace to burn all the blacks and whites as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to your glory. I did not go to sleep that night until I'd gone through my desk and pulled out those letters, curling now with age, and fed them all into my little coal-burning grate. As the flames leaped and glowed, so did my heart. Forgive us our trespasses, Jesus taught us to pray, as we forgive those who trespassed against us. In the ashes of those letters, I was seeing yet another facet of his mercy. What more he would teach me about forgiveness in the days ahead, I did not know. But tonight's good news was good news enough. When we bring our sins to Jesus, he not only forgives them, he makes them as if they had never been. So back to the question, who do you need to forgive? Jesus isn't holding your sins against you. So maybe it's time to quit holding their sins against them. Let's pray. God, our Father, we um, recognize that this is far beyond us. That we cannot do it. That we do not have it in us. But we recognize that it's not far beyond you. Because it's what you have already done for us in Christ. 
So then we pray that you would help us to step forward in faith. That you would help us to grow in trust. That you would help us to come to where we believe. To where we can forgive others. That would be working a miracle in us, Lord. But we know you work miracles. We know you have done it. And we know you can do it. And we know you will do it. So we pray you would do it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.